Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. Welcome to episode 15 of Zoomcron. I'm your host, Travis Mateer, and it is just days away from the conclusion of 2021. One hell of a year, if you think back on all the fun and joy that we experienced collectively together as a society here in America. You know, the West is the best. I think that's what Jim Morrison said. Um, But we're not going to be interviewing Jim Morrison because he's dead, Um, allegedly, died a while back. Uh, We will be speaking, though, with another character, and this character's name is William Skink. Um, You might not have heard of this poet, William Skink rather infamous um allegedly in uh, in his local market in zoom town and so william skink is going to be speaking with us today and giving some opinions on his poetry uh, maybe even some predictions about what to maybe look for in 2022 so um pretty excited to have william skink here in the studio oh yeah he's here baby right here sitting in a chair with a microphone in front of him um, and so, but, but the voice is going to be a little different because William Skink, you know, he's, he's a poet writing controversial poetry um, about local power figures. And so they're after him. They're after that Billy. And so to protect him a bit, to make him feel that this is a safe space, we're going to change the pitch of his voice. Um, later in this in this episode, there's going to be some poems read, and, and and William Skink said that I could read his poetry. Isn't that cool? Oh, thanks, William. Thanks, Billy. Um, but you know, I, I don't want to thank just Billy in the air. I want to thank Billy in person. And so, um, without further ado, let's hear from William Skink. Oh, thanks so much for for having me here, uh, Travis. It's it's a really really good good uh, opportunity for me to sh- um, share my poetry and you know kind of describe maybe for people listening um, what would make a poet so controversial because <laughs> most most people are probably wondering um, does poetry matter and mostly no it would be would be the answer but um, I tried making it matter a couple years ago. Um, and you know, it was pretty fun after, you know, getting a little intimidated by a local official, uh, lawyer with more power than I had at the time. And I still don't have any, you know, power unless you think there's power in the truth or rhymes, but, um, not much at that time when I was sort of being yelled at and cursed at in my workplace felt unsafe. Um, and so, uh, the letter of apology from that official made me feel a little bit safer, but I still wanted to do more with my poems and so I just keep writing them write so many poems I've written like 60 or 70 in the last year after writing a bunch um, called welcome to the Covaxicon which you can buy here you know at the local art place where I rent a studio in downtown Missoula uh, which is zoom town and it's a crazy place oh okay well um, William that's a that's a good sort of I guess 
rambling introduction a bit, but you know, rambling is something that it's definitely looked looked upon in a positive light. I think in the podcast space. Um, my first question, I guess, formally to you, William, would be um, saying, you know, that this is a crazy town, maybe. Um, what? How did you actually come to be in existence? Maybe that's a, a good place for us to start. Um, let's let's go with that. Oh yes, great question, Travis. Great question. So let's think in terms of pen names. Let's think in terms of pseudonyms. Uh, those are are techniques that have been used and are still used by writers. Um, even someone like Stephen King, who maybe is a Satan worshiper, I don't know. Um, no, I don't think so. I think he loves Jesus, possibly. We'll, we'll see. I'll maybe write a poem about that. But you know, someone like Stephen King wrote um, under Bachman. Uh, and so there's different things that you can kind of look at in terms of now online culture where people can just be whoever they want to be. And so um, before William Skink was born, Skink being a lizard where you can pull the tail off, you know, and then it grows back. It's a pretty cool thing that lizard can do. I actually was lizard. Um, and I started commenting at a, a blog called Moon of Alabama. It's written by... Um, or Bernhard and you know that was back in uh, 2008 you know when I was um, after you know Barack Obama made me think that there was hope and change and then it, there wasn't hope and change and I was sad and I wrote poems about it um, and I'll read one of those poems about Obama uh, Obama uh, you know stuff like that and so um, really I think the lizard and I was also DJ chameleon at a local radio station here in Zoomtown called KBGA once upon a time they were cool and they rocked they don't really anymore and I'll t maybe talk about that later but um, yeah so William Skink got born because holy cow when you think about poets and you think about William you got to think about how many goddamn poets there are named William um, I mean seriously you've obviously William Shakespeare you know and then um, you've got William Carlos Williams and you've got uh, William Wordsworth and uh, so, uh, there's a lot more Williams I wrote a poem about how many Williams there are actually that's how many Williams there are and it's, I even have a book of Williams um, because William Colby is like CIA guy uh, it's just all kinds of Williams even um, a hip-hop guy uh, breaks it down like well I am and it kind of gets you into the idea of why there's maybe so many Williams even in shows like Stranger Things there's a Will Will Robinson you know Netflix trying to make us all worship uh, AI demons in the form of cyborgs um, yeah you know so like stuff like that kind of makes me just um, like to have William Skink as a as a, a frame of existence in which to put forth verses does that answer your question, Travis? Yeah, yeah, that definitely is a way to answer that that question. Um, and so, thank you, William, for for sharing a little bit about how you came to be. Um, let's see. So you've write you've written many poems. You mentioned uh, the the poem that kind of got you in trouble. Um, have you gotten a lot of mileage out of that poem? Because it seems like I maybe have heard you talk about it, um, write about it. I think you wrote a second poem called The Empire Strikes Back. Um, at, at some point, are you ever worried that, you know, you might come across as sort of like an egomaniacal uh, writer who is just a little butthurt because you're not getting the sort of recognition that you think you deserve in your own sort of delusional mind? Does that ever, you know, come across your, your, your thought process? 
That's a strange question, Travis, but I will try and answer it in um, maybe the kind of ways in which, um, let's see, poetry. I went to the University of Montana, um, and there's a lot of weird poetry that I like. I have so many books of poetry. Um, I've accumulated much poetry. I love the workshops. Uh, Joanna Klink, Patricia Godecki. I didn't actually ever have Patricia Godecki, but Joanna Klink was very fun um, as a professor that got me thinking in terms of long poems. But then I started thinking, who really cares about poems? Who wants to listen to poems? Um, I didn't really have a lot of musical talent to make songs. That's really where maybe if you want to make a living, um, but making poems and expecting to make a living is kind of nah. So instead of doing that, um, I just drank my feelings for a long time with Boda Box Wine and worked at restaurants for a couple of years. And then, um, you know, that's one place I think where that, you know, dark projection can can sort of exist in the artist's mind, wanting to find some sort of tortured way of um, experiencing this mortal coil in a way that then can be um, sort of used with language or visual imagery or, you know, whatever your medium might be. And then, um, so, what was the question again? Well, let me re reframe maybe the question. Uh, in terms of subject matter, you are writing many poems, it's true, many poems going after institutions, individuals, some public officials. You, you even wrote a poem about someone that you... Uh, that was interviewed by you know recently on a, on a podcast right um, and and so I guess maybe the idea would be what what use um, or what benefit um, in hindsight to people in the future will your poetry have uh, are you I mean are you wanting to lift spirits up are you wanting to educate are you wanting what are you hoping to accomplish with the use of, of poetry Oh, okay, that makes a little more sense. Well, what if a poet was a sort of gonzo person that was documenting things in a way because it needed to be documented, um, especially on a more minute sort of individual level? Um, since the micro is the macro and the macro is the micro, um, it could be illustrative and instructive for future people if there's people and left and not cyborgs merged with technology in a singularity dystopian technocratic future um, that psychopaths are dream dreaming up for us and actually getting us to co-create as artists. But that's kind of not, not the point. I don't think that was your question. Um, what to accomplish with poems? Well, one thing I've learned is the use of megaphones, and that's um, you get some batteries, you know, you put it in a megaphone and you can amplify your voice on streets in, in meat space. That's M-E-A-T, like, you know, like your physical body meat. Um, and so that is one thing you can do with poems and verses. And if, you know, you're writing ones that are sort of, uh, you know, if they rhyme in a way and are accessible to people that have been turned off to poems because... There's ways that all poems sort of sound like this, and everyone writes the poems with this kind of inflection, and it's always some collection of images and obscure references to poets that no one cares about. You know that kind of that kind of poetry. You know, I don't know. Um, poems can get people a little rocking and rolling. They can get people uh, thinking uh, in different ways, um, and. You know, <clears throat> I just, I would be writing poems whether 
people were reading them or not. So it's just a, it's a thing that I do as Billy Skink, the poet of Zoomtown. Uh, and it's something I'm going to continue doing. And my book of poems coming out, I don't know when, next year, 2022, but it's going to be awesome because the title is the best title of a book of poems, I think, really, maybe ever. And it's Babylon by Gaslight. Babylon by Gaslight. Oh, I just... It's so many poems that I've written, like well over 60, maybe even 66, you know. Um, I think that's the age, what, the Jenners or I don't even, Kardashian, I don't know. But it's poems about that and many other things, many things. Well, then that might actually be a, a good way, Billy, for us to segue into the reading of your poems. And so... Um, if you could, why don't you, uh, if you could list out maybe quickly the poems that you're hoping to cover, I, I'm hoping to hear maybe a selection of your poetry over time. So not just your recent ones that are getting more and more just like, you know, kind of in your face, right? Um, but maybe just a, a smattering of your poems um, as we are getting close to wrapping up this 2021 year of surprises and, and just fun and joy that I mentioned earlier, um, and, and reference the poems, and then I will read your poems, Billy, and I will use a little gong sound to, to separate the poems. Um, so why don't you, you do that, and then um, we'll go from there. Okay, well, I'm super excited to read some poems. And I'm not going to read like 60 poems. That would be a lot of poems and people would not want to listen to that many poems. But I have selected nine poems. And we're going to go from Barack Obama to Jesus. Not, you know, just one after another. But um, Chum is about President 44. Sidewalk poem got me in trouble from a local official and also a signed letter of apology. It's totally great. Uh, we'll do True Believers. That's an old poem. We'll do Barb Art. That's B-A-R-B. -B. Um, like like you're giving barbs, like a sharp thing, but also Barb is Barbara Kustra, and she, oh, creative writing, or not creative writing. Uh, she was a director at the museum at the University of Montana, and she's an angry lady, from what I understand. Um, Danny Dudu is about a, he's a state representative from New York, he used to be Homeland Security, I think I mentioned that in the poem. Lynchpin, that's the County Commissioner Dave Strohmeyer, love that guy. Warrior Christ, that's the poem for Jesus. Uh, special Christmas poem, and then I think Dare, Dare is the poem. Maybe some people in the 80s remember D.A.R.E. programs, anti-drug program. Well, I'm trying to, you know, through poetry and education, keep people off of sniffing the tiff. Because it's habit forming, and there's addicts out there. Drug addicts are mayor, you know, is an addict. And tiff is one of these substances that can be habit forming. It's public financing. Might not sound too exciting, tiff, tax increment financing. But it's, it's habit forming, serious thing. It's a real big problem, real big problem. So I write poems, and those are nine poems. So let's go ahead and get into some poems, shall we? Yeah. You know, William Skink, that sounds like a, like a great thing to do. And so 
Um, I'm going to go ahead and test out that, that sound I told you about. Um, and all the listeners out there listening, this is some poetry from William Skink. I, I hope you enjoy. Chum. Oh, he won. He love control. He death sky fly. He big heart hole. Oh, he ran. He big plan make. He basketball. He big head fake. Oh, he does. He does because he loves the buzz. He sucks from us. Oh, he goes. He shows his pose. He grows his nose. The wind he blows. Oh, he can. He fans the flames. He brands the land. He brings their game. Oh, he will. He kill this laughs. He bill wrist cuffs. He shadow maths. Oh, he wants. He fab flaunt gets. He Lincoln creeps. He fascist flex. Oh, he sees. He love burn trees. He breathes in death. He truly believes. Sidewalk Poem You can die on the sidewalk with no place to sleep because here in Missoula even sidewalks aren't cheap. Our dear city leaders want more sidewalks to die on, giving churches opportunities to provide blankets and soup. Sidewalks aren't cheap, some residents now know, after Thanksgiving week letters arrived with the snow. And speaking of snow, stiffer fines are coming for failing to shovel grandma, work off that stuffing. You may think Missoula is a wonderful place with rivers and mountains and great food to taste. But if you're poor and disabled or elderly and infirm or not working in tech, this poet can confirm your worries aren't shared by the luminous ones who know better than you and control all the funds. True Believers You can see it in the silhouette of the mountains. You can feel it in the chirping of the crickets. Where the plains hit the front range, some serious mojo fills with charge of the rock. You can sense it from the men inside the mountain. You can speak it if you let them use your tongue. Rabbits run when they feel it getting close, while poets sip the stream for just a taste. Chasing, it's the chasing, it's the chase, racing this race with its predetermined outcome, which is like saying it's out of my hands, son. Though don't believe everything your father says, housed in Colorado while you're sleeping. Daddy has no idea what worlds you're dreaming. 
nor borrowed rabbit nose to scent the wind, or velvet ears to hear those secret sounds. Just a mind stuffed to brim with useless bits, in the land of shard and splinter, spit and seed, where every spark of engine bleeds us closer to the blasted future every true believer needs. Barb Art What is art to towns on Zoom? What's its role in fueling boom? Where can artists afford to live? How much soul to money give? Barbara Kustra is a poem. Pulling back a house on loan, she's good at making collections grow, finding walls on which to show. What is art to Stockman's bank? Who should hubby banker think? I asked around, but artists know. Art world teeth rip vicious holes. Here's a painting of a fish. Here's a landscape. Make a wish. Cause artists are the worker bees. When patrons keep us on our knees. If that offends, go fuck a duck. Or Monty Dolak, if you're in luck. And if you want to find a stage, consult the mighty Chakota Sage. This is art in Zoomtown now, well-sourced imitation cows. Just as sacred, but louder moos. And just as scared of what is true. Danny Doo-Doo. Sheep-dipped Democrat, New York-born, Homeland Security, weaponized scorn, Free the car pirate like Indiana Jones, And loud train horns, leave Rattlesnake alone, 200 grand to make them shut up. Good job, Gwen, your ears had enough. It's Angin's Missoula, the actors are set with their safety scissors and their holy net. Zoot Town Garden City, pardon my spit, but those left remaining can't swallow more shit. Two bad gladhanders and mayor bloat had crafty stowaways who pooped in their boat. This here's their story, better pay heed, or your town could catch their tiff-sniff scheme. And because that's contagious. Choo-choo! That's right. Lynchpin. Dave is Lynchpin, it is true. The fastener from me to you. Umbilical, our tax blood flows. Choo-choo training from head to toe. Without Dave, it falls apart, public legs and private hearts. Without his pin, pushed in our hole, his usefulness could not be sold. Lynchpin Dave, no twist and shout. Private hands squeeze public cows, applying pressure until they spurt. Now come on, public, back to work. If you do, you'll get a shot at loving Dave's linchpin a lot 
and extra service he provides while shifting talk from public eyes. Warrior Christ. Jesus is my mystic pal, Jesus and his princess gal, light of love and union fed, relieve us, Lord, in peaceful beds. Lego world is dark, I'm told, so I keep building in the cold. Do not toy me as a dodge, help me build a non-lynch lodge. Light is brightest upside down, they claim, in odes to Lucy Town. Billy Butler, it's time we fight, the beast you summoned by gaslight. Not alone with stupid spells, A.R. Gene pocket hells, but in alliance with other sparks, amidst the teeth of clever sharks. What did Admiral Farragut say? What did the man Tom Petty play? Take the safe road with head down, or damn the torpedoes and call them out. That's rhetorical if you didn't know. If your cognition is ticking slow, loading live rounds isn't fun, but we'll have wildflowers when we're done. Christmas. Half vaxxed, half not. Grandma has her booster shot. Plastic trash bag for the wrapping. Flash of camera. PR mapping. Document self-conscious smiles. Heroin likes in empty piles. Grandpa ices the champagne. Plagued with mad cow in his brain. Dad no angel goes puff puff. His modest workout makes him huff. And don't forget the creamed caffeine to survive this Christmas scene. Now the sugar and the carbs with snow occluding grassy yards. Merry, merry, ho, 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 spruce the poop with pretty bows. Dare. Tiff aware, don't dare sniff. You'll take the township off a cliff. Where the drift boats always miss, danger rocks for A-list tips. Debt in ocean where not a drop sees its roll as flooding mop, smearing off the dirty hordes from a Rockefeller floor. Ivy Getty, 11-6, Pelosi stands, official hiss, lovely shards and Teflon scales with pepperoni on emails. I forgot you like it, dumb. From any hint, you'll quickly run. The peem is bink and also numb when wieners hide inside the buns. Triggered always, woken rich, rocket tweets and pharma's bitch. Like a chick on coffee cup, star your bucks, then cut your nuts. Do it for the dude in dress, Mithras man you'd never guess. 
unless a Chris decodes the tongue of Sybil songs and secret sons. Okay, well, I think that should mostly conclude uh, this this little interview introduction. Um, maybe I'll maybe I'll actually slap on another interview I did with a poet, Mark Gibbons, um, just to fill out this full end of two thousand twenty one uh, portion of Zoom Cron, uh, a, a new version of a podcast that I actually started in January of two thousand twenty as Zoom Town. I'm still kind of trying to think about what to do with some of the old material. Not all of all of the stuff has been uploaded to this new format. But um, before we get to another interview, um, let's see if it, William Skink has any final thoughts to share with our listening audience. William, any any final thoughts to share about 2021, about the upcoming 2022 year that you'd like to share? Oh, well, I, I think just, you know, really just thanks for having me. Um, thanks for talking to me, making eye contact. Um, people don't seem to want to talk to me much anymore. Um, they walk the other way when they see me. Um, sometimes I see law enforcement around. Sometimes it's even private security. I don't know. Have you heard of Rogers International? They're, they seem really hot right now. Um, but really, uh, what would I say? 2021. Well, you know, heck. Heck, gosh. Fun things happening. Um, just really amazing how many artists are not really standing up for themselves, for uh, bodily autonomy, their own sort of ability to do what they want to do. Um, you know, I don't know. It's going to be weird locally. Um, you know, you still kind of got the log jam, jamming up things. Uh, local music scene, I don't know. Uh, local documentary scene, oh, that's funny. That's funny, but there is going to be documentary. There is going to be music coming. There's going to be poetry. There's going to be so many things, I think, in 2022. And while there is this kind of crypto argument space, I didn't read the Allison poem, but, you know, because there's all kinds of division and and bad feelings um, and people trying to make their bones out in them meta versus that's not the verses I'm interested in the meta versus well you know to some degree if we're talking symbolically but not the zuck fuck not that zuck thing no 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 I'm not really interested in the zucker fucker uh, meta tucker um, into the pod world um, so but it is an aspect of what's happening so um, there is a possibility that Rockfin on, in a video format, live streaming kind of way, um, but I don't know. Will there be new people on the other side of the table? Will another person or the older person that, that was on the other side of the table starts talking again to, you know, you, Travis? I don't know what's going to happen in 2022. I'm no, you know, prophet. Well, sometimes maybe, but um, if I have anything to think say i'd say that our current mayor forever who has four fantastic years coming up um is going to have just kind of a roller coaster up and down up and down 
Um, what kind of crises will come up that he can milk for his own benefit? What kind will he have to suppress in the local media? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, will Zoomcron, the blog, get out of, uh, you know, Microsoft Defender Jail? Not readily answers coming to those kind of questions, but... Um, certainly I think there are people interested. Maybe there are some people listening. Maybe they want to talk to you, Travis, and they should probably, you know, talk to you through your, um, email, which if I say it, it might actually give a whole gig up of what we're doing here. Um, someone mentioned Tyler Durden, you know, um, just looking back, were there clues? What was happening? Um, I don't know, uh, but really I'm looking for clues. I'm looking for synchronicities. That will be a part of 2022 is synchromistic stuff. Christopher Knowles, someone I want to talk to. Um, divisions will happen, though, in crypto blockchain spaces. Um, Derek Bros might be someone to talk to. Um, just lots of things. Random people pulled from the streets will be people to talk to. Um, so those are things. For 2022 and now it sounds like you want to talk to some other poet that's not me and that's offensive because poets have big egos you know this travis and i am the only poet of zoomtown you can't talk to other poets of zoomtown no other poets exist in zoomtown but me i am the all william skinking of zoomtown how dare you have another poet talk but i guess if you want to it's your your deal so um do what you want man but don't do what thou wilt because um, unless it's a meme with a piece of lettuce, and then that's okay, and that's funny, and I laugh, and laughter is joy, and that is really the signature of 2021, right? Is joy? I think so. Do you think so? Uh, well, yes, and I, I, I think um, that was a very long response, and I think the charade that we've been um, going on here for now over 30 minutes is 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 just fantastic and ready to be done. So um, I will now look at, uh, let's go and import another conversation. Mark Gibbons, Montana poet, um, th that is coming up. And then at, at the end, you know, we'll just see, we'll see what, what happens here. Um, have a nice end of 2021. Stay safe, stay alive. 2022. I'm looking at you. Let's fucking do it, baby. Adios for now. Hello, and you are tuning in to another episode of Zoom Town. I'm your host, Travis Matier, and the conversation you are about to listen to is one with the poet Mark Gibbons. I've known Mark for, for many years, and a great chance to catch up with him. Mark is a potty mouth. I must warn listeners, he uses prolific cursing and profanity in addition to his verse in his poems. One reason why I love his poetry. Um, another reason is that we met during the anti-war era of the, of the Bush years. And so we talk about that among many other things. Oh, let's see. There was something else I was going to mention, but now I'm forgetting. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, my, my audio, my vocals kind of rough to listen to. Um, I have done some post-production work in the old Pro Tools, and what that amounts to essentially is I did a couple plugins. There's like an equalizer thing, something about a channel strip. Um, I just basically do different things until it sounds marginally better, um, and so that is the level of expertise I am currently bringing to Zoomtown, a still relatively new podcast. 
Um, I'm also hoping to be talking to a, another podcaster soon that's being worked out in the background as we speak. And what else? More conversations coming up, more interviews. Uh, you can tune in every Tuesday. We will be featuring something new every Tuesday. Uh, both me and my co-host, Tim Adams, who does production work as well, helps on the ones and twos, I think is what they say. I don't know. He got some equipment. Uh, it's like a mixer. So a lot of, lot of high-tech stuff happening here. That's how we got to do it. 2021. This is February 15th. Currently, the conversation with Mark is recorded February 4th. You can contact me at willskink at yahoo.com. That's W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K, Wheelskink, my pseudonym, artistic persona, um, and LLC for the media company, William Skink. With that all said, thank you for listening, and please enjoy the conversation. Children, cover your ears. Okay, I believe we are recording so welcome to another episode of Zoom Town. I have with me via Zoom a poet, one of my favorite, favorite local poets, Mark Gibbons is with me. And Mark is going to sit here patiently as I read through a bit on his um, prolific output as a poet. So really quickly, Mark Gibbons is the author of 10 collections of poetry. His last four, Forgotten Dreams, came out 2012. And this, this might be a little bit late because I know you had something, or a little bit um, out of date. I know you had something that came out in March of 2020. Um, so we have Forgotten Dreams, 2012, um, Shadow Boxing, 2014, The Imitation Blues, 2017. Um, oh, yeah, and Mostly Cloudy was the 2020 publication. Um, and then in 2018 and 2019, you edited two books of poetry for Drum Lumen Institute. Um, and that is some stuff by Ed Leahy, which is fantastic. I love Ed Leahy. Um, so you did Moving On, The Last Poems of Ed Leahy and Summer Lightning, a collection of poems by Marler Wilson. Um, did I say that correctly, Marler? Mar Mary Lore. Mary Lore. Mary Lore Wilson. Okay. You were also the recipient on a, on a 2013 Artist Innovation Award from the MAC. What, is, what does that stand for, Mark? Arts Council. Okay. And uh, Mark lives in Missoula with his wife, Pam, and their cat, Felix. A retired working class mule is what this excerpt says. He still teaches poetry for the Missoula Writing Collaborative the Montana Arts Council, and continues to write. So with that, welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me, Travis. It's been a long time since we had a, had a good uh, uh, chat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, we, we talked last, I think, behind Bernice's Bakery um, in the park bench before the pandemic started. And then you reminded me as we had a chance to kind of catch up before we recorded started recording today. Um, that I, I kind of chased you down after an anti-war poem event. Um, and that was back probably, oh goodness, when was that? I, I'm guessing, uh, well, that book that you mentioned uh, was uh, 2008. So it must have been like probably 2009 or so, I would guess. It wasn't too long after that, simply because that, that was a strange story with that book. And I all of a sudden I had all these books and I didn't know what to do with them. And I, I went to that reading, uh, that uh, Peace and Justice yep. was the Jeanette Rankin Center reading. It was above the old uh, Red Pies over Montana, whatever is there or 
you know, on, on restaurants have been there since then, but on North Higgins and, and the book of poetry that we're talking about wasn't one I actually mentioned. Um, it was one we were talking about on the phone and that's war, madness and love, a collaborative effort between you and Michael Revere. Um, and, and that's really, I remember getting that book of poetry and really identifying with, with just your language, the, your, your language is so accessible. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is because uh, I really like poetry that you can kind of wrap your head around and, and you can get inside um, that isn't keeping you on the outside with a lot of flowery images that, that really isn't tied to like a narrative core. And your, your poems often tell stories. They tell stories about people that aren't necessarily represented in the poetic canon. Um, and I just, I love your work. And so, so speak a little bit, I guess, maybe about how you came to the, the form, the craft of poetry, and a little bit about your, your background, because I would love to know more. Uh, well, I mean, I, uh, I, I didn't really grow up uh, in, a, in a family that, uh, my dad was a, was a reader, but then he worked for, he worked for the railroad, and he was like, right. he was gone for time, and he was back, and then, so he did most of his reading, like, on the road or at night, and, but the house wasn't full of books and I really didn't start reading, you know, reading much or prolifically until uh, probably high school, you know, like about a freshman in high school. And then I, then I really got excited about language and about reading. You know, one of the things I remember exciting me in high school was uh, we used to, uh, we, we had a, a decent English teachers when I was in high school. And yeah. one of the things this, this one young English teacher had us do, of course, was read Shakespeare out loud. And, uh, and, you know, it's like, it was, I just fell in love with that. I fucking had no idea what was going on half the time, but it was just the sound of the language and the- it's Amazing, it's amazing. Yeah, exactly. It was just the sound of the language and the way it made you feel, even though you didn't quite have a total grasp on it, you know? So yeah. with that, I started reading more and I, I, I knew right away that I liked poetry a lot. For some reason, uh, that spoke to me. Uh, who jumped out at you at first? I mean, who were some of like the the the, the writers that that really got you interested in in putting down verses yourself? Well, well, I mean, early on, these were they were sort of young teachers. This is like 1969 or whatever, and so they they were coming out with uh, they were using modernists, you know, and then the the more popular of the latter postmodernist sort of poets like Plath and people like that. But the, the modernists, we, we, we looked at Eliot, you know, we looked at Cummings and, yeah. and these, these poets that I thought, what the hell, you know, this is like wild. You didn't quite understand it exactly. Uh, and, and, and that was, that attracted me on one level. And uh, so that's how I, I mean, I really, as much as I under, I agree with what you're saying, and I, I, and I have a poem I was going to read along those lines too, dealing with just this whole idea of poetry and uh, and what attracted me and what didn't. It's odd that that the the nonsense or the not quite able to grasp it really sort of captured me inside, but but it pissed me off too because I I really wanted to know what the hell was going on there, you know. So I was kind of torn between those two things. Richard Brodigan came into my being, you know, because he was like this prolific, successful published poet uh, in the late 60s, right? Yeah, right. Because of the whole hippie thing and the and what City Lights had done to sort of lift uh, poetry into the spotlight for a little while, you know? And, uh, 
So I th th those were a lot of the, the poets, I guess, that, that were sort of uh, there for me in the very beginning. Uh, I love that you're saying, saying the, the, some of the difficulty was part of what brought you in because I, I so much agree with that in a way that I don't necessarily use it in my own work, but um, I like the difficult poetry, but I, I also saw sort of elitism in, in being able to understand and approach it where it's like all these oblique references to other oblique literary, you know, references. And, and, and so there, there's, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the language of it. I, there's poets that I like, you know, Jack Spicer, someone I really, I really love. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of the more, even more recent contemporary stuff that's, that's difficult to get into. I, I personally enjoy it, but for some reason I wanted to be more of a Tom Petty of poetry, a more populist, um, I, I want the images to have a, a narrative structure. I, I, I don't mind having simple end rhymes. I use a lot of simple rhyme schemes. Yeah. Um, it's, just, it's something that's it's formalism, right? It, and for non-poetry nerds, um, maybe, maybe we should back up a little bit as well to talk a little bit about, you know, the 60s and 70s, um, the free verse that really became dominant at the universities. Um, I mean, there became a sort of, uh, sort of a literary elitism that, that, that's calcified over the last couple of decades, in my opinion. Um, but, but in the 60s and 70s, a lot of it was new. A lot of that, that free verse um, exploration, using the modernist to sort of go further out there. Um, I mean, it must have been a, an exciting time for you to be coming to language and, and seeing the newness and freshness of all of that. Well, yeah, it was because I mean, you know, when uh, as a as a kid and whatnot, all you were really exposed to, I mean, uh, were the old formalists and the boring stuff like rape of the lock, the old English forms, you know, yeah. the sonnet and the uh, all those forms that uh, that people wrote in. The ballad was about as you know as exciting as it got. I mean, one of one of the pe one of the people I did experience as a kid, Mike, because my dad loved him. And had this yeah. massively big, thick book was Robert Service's poems. Oh yeah, Robert Service. That's a name I always see at the used bookstore, but I'm not familiar with his work really at all. Fuck, you will love Robert Service. Okay. Grab that thing next time, you know, because I mean, you will love it because it is of the people of the earth, and it's of the North Country. Uh, he was a Scotsman, but he went to uh, the Yukon in Alaska, you know, during that gold rush time. And he okay. wrote about the people there. And he wrote about the strangeness of the isolation and people yeah. on this landscape and the harshness. So all the language involves all that. But he used the rhythms of things like, uh, you know, his most famous poem was The Cremation of Sam McGee. Oh, okay. And it, okay. it goes, there are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Oh, yeah, I've heard that's beautiful. It was from Tennessee where the cotton blooms and blows and why he left his home in the South to roam round the pole. God only knows. He was always cold, but that land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. <laughs> that's just the beginning of this long narrative poem where this guy deals with this other guy who hates the cold and finally dies but before he dies uh uh uh, uh 
I want you to swear, come foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. And yeah. so the other guy feels like he had incumbent upon, he has to cremate him somewhere, but they're on this icy landscape and how does he, he finally he finds a spot and it, so anyway it's just a it's wonderful but I, the music and the imagery the mystery the story well and the way the way you read the, the way you bring your voice to the words really is what in my in my mind brings some of the the, the maybe boring verse that on the page to life and so you you read it with such gusto that was that was beautiful can i read um some some of your work back to you now this is just a, a quick little excerpt um, and I'm just kind of grabbing this. Um, and this, I believe, let's see. I'm just going to jump into the middle of a poem, which is terrible to do. But um, today, everything's beyond her control. We watch as the World Trade Center explodes and collapses over and over again on her Sony big screen TV, like some two-star Bruce Willis action flick where they burn New York City into Beirut or Baghdad. Um, that's an image that, as poets, we document history, right? Yeah. Uh, and and so it was a different time back then to be a poet. And maybe it was an easier time back then to be an anti-war poet. Um, well, I guess maybe after 9-11, it wasn't easy to be anti-war. I mean, there, there was a time, and we forget that, you know, 20 years ago when we were attacked on 9-11, that, um, you know, there's there was censorship back then, and there was there was a lot of I mean, there was a lot of intensity and passions on both sides of, of issues back then as well. Um, but it just seems like we have gone through a time and you are a white man and I'm a white man. Yeah, I got that right. <laughs> you know, we're both very, very white and, and we're both men. And one of the things I actually wanted to, to, to bring up um, was, was Eileen Miles, um, because I, there's questions, I guess, maybe as we talk about who was a part of the canon, we were, we were talking about the old English guys, right? So the, the canon of poetry, the, the stuff that's, that's taught um, is a bunch of dead old white guys. And so I think there's a really obviously important conversation that's been happening for a while about, um, you know, whose voice gets represented. And so for us as white men, we've had our chance for many, many years. And, and maybe, you know, that's something that we need to, to think about. And along those lines, um, this is back in 2016. Eileen Miles did do, a, I think, a New York Times Magazine uh, issue. And let me just see if I can find the quote. There's a couple of quotes that I wanted to read and just kind of get your, your feedback. Um, and let's see. And this was by Anna Marie Cox is the person who did the interview January 13, 2016. Um, let's see. I'm just going to try and find the part. Okay, so what do you think of Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again? And the response from Eileen Miles, um, I hadn't even heard it until now. It is so forgettable. Nothing I said was forgettable. It was all designed to be remembered. Um, then the next question, you supported Hillary Clinton in 2008, but you wrote she wasn't really a feminist until she was losing. Are you supporting her today? Um, and then her response, you know, I've grown to love Barack Obama. Hillary is no Bernie Sanders, but she's a politician. She understands Congress, and I think... With that kind of twisted beauty, she could lead our country. I want a she in the White House now. Um, and then, let's see, let me just go down a little bit. Um, you've, and this is a question. You've written, if the poetry world celebrated its female stars at the true level of their productivity and influence, poetry would wind up being a largely female world and the men would leave. What if society as a whole recognized women that way? And Eileen's response, 
I think it would be great. I think it would be a great time for men basically to go on vacation. There isn't enough work for everybody, certainly in the arts in all genres. I think that men should step away. I think men should stop writing books. I think men should stop making movies or television, say for 50 to 100 years. So, Mark, why are you still writing? Why, why do you still write poems? I write because if I didn't, I would lose my mind. Um, and a lot of um, artists and, and writers, you know, they write because they can't really imagine not writing. But, um, you know, she makes valid points. I think about, you know, women productivity and influence in a lot of ways is going to be stymied historically by um, the burdens of family rearing. And, and, and there are those dynamics that certainly are, are worth having a conversation about. I wonder, though, as two white men, should we even be having a conversation at all? And does, does our opinion matter? <laughs> who my who my opinion you know re really matters to about fucking anything but uh <laughs> you know I, I get a kick out of her i mean that that's just there's there's no better way to get somebody's attention than through that kind of a shock sort of yeah. statement about shut the fuck up and get the hell out of here you know what i mean it's like what a great way to fucking get some attention i mean she's absolutely right that uh that men should just you know listen and yeah no, absolutely it doesn't mean that that, that, that that they don't ever speak and i don't think she really believes that as much right. as she really wants to just tell people hey you have put women down you have held them down they've been second class citizens in this culture forever and it's time you fucking woke up and realized that they probably have more to offer than you do you should have realized that at the birth of your goddamn children when you notice that holy fuck my job is done my seed is sown i could die right now and that, the rest of the world would go on without me until they needed another seed again and, and if I sired a boy, I, my, I'm, I'm worthless. Put me down. You know, I mean, really, that, that is a realization that I think every man needs to have if you haven't had it. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I think back to my time at the University of Montana, and one of my favorite teachers was David Moore. Um, and I took my literary criticism class with him. And uh, David, David is just fantastic. Um, he wrote me a great uh, letter recommendation, although the MFA program turned me down and we'll get to that about how butthurt I, I was but it ultimately was for the, for the best um but but I, re, I actually went to David's class after 9-11 after the attack um and I remember being in his class and the, the whole year was just great um the whole semester with it with him but I remember as we got to the the sort of gender studies part of the literary criticism that there was a a non-trad student she was an older woman um probably in her late 40s or 50s and she was from New Zealand, I think. And I remember her shocking the class by saying, I want men to be men. <clears throat> I want a man to change my tire, to offer to change my tire. I don't care if that's a sexist thing. And it was, you know, the younger, the younger people in the class were like, well, well, oh my goodness. I don't know if you, you know, I, I just remember the silence after her saying that. But, you know, I, for a long time, I, I've kind of thought that men are in crisis in a lot of ways. And that um, I don't know if it helps to just say shut up, you know, and maybe that's not what she was saying. But I, I think there really needs to be a, a sense of maybe the divine masculine and the divine feminine and how there, there are divine differences. And that's not a, a bad thing. Something like Iron John. Right. Do you ever read Iron John? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, some of that men's men's stuff that, that I, I think, you know, 
if we want men to evolve and 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 widen their emotional literacy, you know, then we we need to be supportive of 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 any guys writing poetry, guys writing anything. I think I think, you know, I think men I think men have evolved or they are evolving and have been evolving, and we have plenty of examples of that in the past. But the fact of the matter is that because this of the whole structure of the culture and the whole paternal systemic built-in way in which things have worked for so long, we can't get away from basic sort of things. We make mistakes all the time because we've been in this elevated kind of status of, you know, nothing matters more than our fucking point of view. And, uh, but, but I mean, I think we've been tuned in to the realization that, that we need to listen and, and, and that's, that, that's a human thing. And, and that's a construct that we, I think, hopefully are learning uh, as this culture slowly evolves. And, you know, I mean, that's one of the main things that I guess uh, uh, that I've seen now that I've been around for a little bit of time is <laughs> social evolution is so fucking slow. And when I was young, in the, you know, like when the civil rights movement was going down and everybody else jumped on that bandwagon from women to every other minority or, or marginalized group in this country and, right. you know, saying, hey, what about what about us? We've been fucked by you guys, too. So why not? Why not let you know? And, and, and I thought that we were moving fast. And then, of course, the pendulum comes swinging back in this massive other direction. So the, 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 our gains are so fucking minuscule on a, on a, it. It's hard to even recognize them. You know? well, here's here's where I come from. A, my my angle, I guess, is 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 really changed in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I almost identify now more as a conservative, which is weird because I, you know, went to the University of Montana and was sort of liberal minded, had long hair, was a hippie looking guy. Um, I still write poetry, but yeah, and you still sport the ponytail for, for the listening audience. Uh, Mark just showed us his ponytail and it's, it's glorious. His silver hair, he's an elder and you should respect your elders. We were talking generational, but, but we're talking more um, identity politics. You know, that was one of my frustrations is that, um, you know, I certainly didn't control the, the, the skin tone in which I, I was born into um, and the thing between my legs, I, you know, that's kind of how I came through as my packaging. And so um, there, there is this, this frustration that I feel, you know, that like, okay, um, hmm, I'm still going to, I'm still going to write and I'm still going to have my opinions. And part of those opinions, you know, I, I never stopped being anti-war and my disillusionment started in 2009, 2010, when um, I saw Democrats rebrand wars into humanitarian, inter humanitarian interventions. Um, and I saw the, the uh, joy in which you know, a lot of sort of liberal elitists, you know, really liked having a more competent speaking president committing the war crimes instead of a, you know, plain speaking George Bush. And so as Trump, you know, got elected and I actually called it, there's a video back in October uh, before the election in 2016, where I was like, oh, my God, I think this guy might actually be a dark horse that gets in somehow. Um, and I had my other theories for, for that, but um, I just, I, I see how I think the Democratic Party, we, we can't escape politics. The Democratic Party has really left a lot of people behind. And there's a reality that a lot of people that voted for Obama in 2012 voted for Obama in 2016. And in terms of this sort of divisiveness, um, one of the things I wanted to, to bring up, you, 
you mentioned a name of another writer and I had actually had this interaction with uh, Chris Littray on, on Twitter. And the, the reason why I had this interaction with him is because he had this tweet and it, I just want to acknowledge anytime we talk about the fact we're talking on Twitter, uh, it sounds like high school. And this is embarrassing for all of us, I think, when we talk about tweets. And, and so this is high school and I should be embarrassed, but I'm going to go ahead and do it because I embarrass myself all the time. Um, but, but Chris had this tweet that said, that, and this is his tweet, the incoming governor of Montana is a creation museum guy. People here are dumb. And then I retweeted him and, and said, I, 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 of course, have to add my opinion, right? And my, my opinion is, guys, yeah, Chris, then, Chris is of mixed blood, but he's got a lot of white in him, too. <laughs> he identifies as, as, yeah, I can't remember the tribe, but um, my white guy comment was, this is the perspective of a culture creator who clearly doesn't understand what neoliberalism has done to regular people in rural places like Montana. Maybe too much time taking university workshop classes? Okay, and I don't know Chris, right? And so he reminded me that I don't know him. And his response is, I've never taken a university workshop class in my life, and I don't have a degree in anything. You don't know shit about me or my relationship to the working class of Montana. So, as my dad would say, go fuck yourself. Fair enough, Chris. Fair enough. Fair enough. I was being an asshole. I was trolling you. Fair enough. But I just wanted to bring it up, and I'm glad that you're laughing and I'm laughing, because who are we to be having these stupid-ass opinions? You know, really taking care of our families, being there and present in the lives of the people that matter most. I mean, that really should be the focus. And I know that you are a good man because you have a good woman behind you, um, probably more famous than you are, probably more famous, Mark. I don't know. Pam might be a little bit more famous. And, and my wife certainly keeps me, you know, keeps my bullshit at a minimum. So uh, I think we're lucky to have good women behind us. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, the whole, uh, uh, <laughs> whole short short soundbite thing the whole the whole business of of us you know weighing in uh on, on each on each other uh is it's it's too damn convenient uh yeah. in a way and and it's uh it, and it's 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 so dramatic you know i mean i think that you know you, you two guys standing together on the fucking street having that conversation would have had it he would have told you to go fuck yourself you you would have laughed and said something back to him and between the between the time that the conversation was over you'd have walked away from each other and said hey man see you later you know i mean that's the reality i think that we're missing in this whole fucking internet snarky or or not snarky necessarily but just opinionated back and forth throwing the fucking hammers and punches at each other you know i mean it's yeah. Absolutely. And that's a way to avoid it. But every once in a while I get sucked in. It's just that the drama of it all. And I think like, fuck, you, shut the fuck up, you stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> we just prove that we never leave high school. The more we engage in that kind of that kind of drama theatrics, uh, we, we just never, never leave high school, apparently. But um, I mean, you bring up a really good point, though, about the, the online interactions and how you're lacking that, that, you know, body language, the proximity to another human. And, you know, all of this pandemic related isolation that people are experiencing, you know, I really see the artists that I interact with really suffering. I go to, I was actually just talking to someone about John and Ear Candy, going down to Ear Candy and you know, he's really hoping that vaccine gets here soon and everyone gets it because, you know, I don't think he sees a, a, a world of taking, of going to shows and concerts and music, you know, without this sort of prerequisite. Um, and, and so for artists, especially musicians, working artists, I think it's been so fucking 
scary to be isolated um, away from, you know, what provides, you know, part of that inspiration to create art. Yeah. Uh, how, how have you been managing the last, the last, you know, year of insanity? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little, I think it's a little different for somebody, you know, like in our realm or, or, uh, I mean, a poet is, uh, you, you, you pretty much, uh, right. we're, we're kind of solo yeah. of your, 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 your work in that particular, uh, form, I guess it's total isolation. Uh, right. and, and I've, uh, you know, since, uh, I joined Facebook, uh, 11, 12 years ago, I think my son said, well, you know, and you can post poems there. Well, basically that's what I fucking do on Facebook is I, I just get right. up submitting poems a long time ago because I got so fucking <laughs> sick and tired of waiting around to hear from somebody and half the time it was some fucking dipshit that tried to tell me how to write my goddamn poem it's like are you fucking kidding me uh, who the hell do you I mean what that's what you think your job is is to tell people how to write their fucking poems what an idiot I'm so Ten books of poetry. I mean, I mean, you must have been submitting lots of stuff and 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 running it because I, I didn't actually pursue a lot of those those kind of publications because of uh, frankly I'm lazy and I saw the work it, it, it took. Um, <laughs> I mean, you must have worked your ass off to 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 really you know get stuff out there the way you did. No, I mean early on I did. You know, early on I did, and and I think that kind of everybody I think does it. Uh, early on, and then you know if you're if you're really a serious uh, a poet who looking for a serious press for your work, you <laughs> continue to do it and you will keep making those con connections um, and, and falling in line with editors and publishers and other poets out there who are in the, 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 the mix. And I, I just, I didn't have time. And one of the main reasons I didn't have time was I, I had a fucking job. I had, I had, I had to pay the rent. Poetry doesn't pay shit. The only <laughs> people that are really making it as poets are teaching in academia or somehow they have this other sort of maybe publishing related uh, connection that pays them real fucking money. They're, they're teachers or they're, they're, they're not getting paid. They're not living on poetry, you know, shit. Most, yeah. I don't think most fiction writers probably do very well on, on what they sell. You know, I, I don't know how they do it unless you get a movie goddamn, you know, contract or something. But, but anyway, so I, I started just putting poems up on Facebook because I wanted to share poems with other people. And right. I knew that that uh, I was lucky enough to have met, uh, you, you know, some other people that really wanted to do the publishing thing. And, yeah. so, and so I did have a foot in the door and, and, and found a couple of publishers and, and just stuck with it because I'm lazy and, <laughs> and I don't want to continue to fucking play that game. Yeah. I, I just want to leave behind me uh, a stack of of letters and poems for anybody that might want to pick them up and say, Oh yeah, I, yeah, I can, I'm, I'm a, I'm that, I had a day like that yesterday, you know, whatever, uh, or maybe not, or, or just throw it aside, but at least it's there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we talked about, you know, poets documenting history. And one of the things I, I love anthologies. I, I have a huge poetry collection. I lots of, lots of different, uh, different stuff, but I, I found this anthology of world war one poems and part of it was sort of describing how poetry functioned back then, how, how poetry was in newspapers, how people wrote op-eds in verse. 
Um, I mean, just just the 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 I guess cultural competency when it came to verse was was different back then, and that and that poetry was just seen as as more important, I guess. And I did you ever remember the the essay that became a book called uh, "Can Poetry Matter" by Dana Goya? Joya. Did you remember yeah. that? Joya, is it Joya? Yeah. Joya, yeah. What did you think of that? Because I was really, I was blown away actually. And it was interesting because I didn't realize that there was such a thing as maybe a conservative minded poet and that, you know, formalism and traditionalism was this other area because free verse was such a dominant part of poetry when I was you know, going through the university. But um, he really did, I think, bring up that question of what does poetry actually function in society? Like is the truth telling of poetry valued and and we're not making much money selling selling poetry so maybe it's not much valued well and 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 i think you know i mean part i, I don't know i don't know what year that was published now I, i'm i'm thinking like late 90s or early, early pardon maybe i think the essay actually came out early 90s um tim tim's going to check on that and see yeah but but anyway uh the uh the the, the you know i mean by that time uh you know, because I, I think, you know, like I mentioned before, like uh, late 60s, uh, Brodigan was was a best selling goddamn author for uh, for for uh, these little, uh, you know, Grove Press, these little uh, places. And, and so so there was because of the, the 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 baby boomers, because of the war and and this sort of uh, interest in all the beats who had preceded uh, that whole situation and were there through the city lights uh, catalog. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that uh, the poetry did matter at that time a lot more because of the war, because of the politics, you saw a lot more of it. And, uh, and then after that, when the country sort of slipped into heading towards disco, you know, or whatever, uh, a, a poetry seemed to just uh, move more into uh, the academia sort of setting, I think, and that's where it's sheltered for a while, and I think that's kind of where uh, Joya's essay came out of, uh, can it matter, and I, and, and in a way, I, I felt that was saying to me, can it matter to, to regular people, like it did back in World War One, like it yeah. did in the 1960s and 70s, uh, right. it mattered to regular people, yep. uh, and it always had been of the people, and uh, so, I mean, that's, that's all I was really interested in, in terms of my poetry, uh, yeah. and obviously I, I went to graduate school I went to graduate school at the University of Montana and and I felt like a duck out of water and I was probably one of the old I was the oldest guy I think in that particular uh you sort of non-traditional nope. I was in my 40s you know so everybody else is in their their 20s or maybe a couple in their early 30s there was one other uh, uh poet that was in their 40s and uh and and what I was writing about was totally different than what most of the rest of those poets were writing about because they had they had grown up in a different tradition and 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 I was just writing out of my own kind of lexicon uh, background and it was all you know it wasn't just fuck piss shit cunt but <laughs> but it 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 was working class and it was. Uh, I mean, you, you, th that's what you heard. Uh, you're not afraid of those words. You're not afraid of that. Gosh, you know? <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and so uh, th th that was the kind of language and sort of directly speaking and kind of yeah, kind of a, a sort of a form that seemed to look someone in the eye when they talked to them. That was that was what I wanted or what I wanted to try to do, you know. And so when I would write those kinds of things or tell those kinds of stories about growing up in the little dinky ass town I came from, doing yeah. some experience or a work situation that didn't really resonate with, with the other people that, that I was around in the workshops and whatnot. And I, I don't know, I mean, some of them maybe liked it, but a lot of them just kind of was, it was like a kind of a crap <laughs> to them, you know, like who, where, yeah. where did grandpa come from? I, I don't know. I kind of felt like a duck out of water in a way. Um, yeah. But then, you know, I think all poets kind of feel like a duck out of water most of the time, maybe. Um, but it was, you certainly don't always get along well with each other because of the, the monumental ego that, that always seems to be involved in writing, especially poetry and, and thinking that, you know, it matters to, to other people. But, you know, I, I think, you know, the poets that I like really, most poetry, most poets, I think, find their, their voice later in life. Um, I look back at the stuff I was writing in my 20s and 30s and it's like, come on, I didn't have many life experiences. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. You know, I, you, you're trying out other voices like you're trying out clothes. You know, you put on this coat, you put on this pair of pants. And, and so, you know, I, I think I love some of the some of the workshop. I really enjoyed workshops. I, I kind of missed the workshop environment because I love revision. I loved getting feedback from other writers. Um, I liked the, the how other people would see things um, in the in my own work that I that I didn't see. or I didn't understood that, you know, the resonation. I really miss that that part of it, that community part, because um, I think there was a lot of excitement at, at finding new voices and, and, and growing your own sort of experiences. Um, Joanna Klink was one of my favorite professors. She made us write a long poem, and I end, ended up for an entire year writing a poem that no one will ever probably see because I'll hide it. It's like over 100 pages long, and it was just from 2010 when my second child was born um, to 2011, October to October. And just, you know, I, I enjoy all different kinds of, of poetry, but I also selfishly want poetry to be more popular. And, and, and I, want, I want, you know, people that, that think of poetry as this Ivy Tower academic thing to realize there's poets out there like you that don't give a fuck about the Ivory Tower. You know, you'll climb up there and then check it out and look around a little bit and, you know, and maybe spit, you know, a loogie off the, the, the fourth story turret window. Um, and... and and then go back to, to living your life. And if something appeals to you, you'll write a fucking poem about it, right? I, I, uh, along that lines, can I read you a poem? Yes, 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 yes please. I mean, just, just I, when you, you, you talked, uh, we talked earlier and you mentioned sort of that you had uh, gone and seen Eileen uh, uh, Miles when she was here and, and that you had read this article yeah. whatever, and, and then what she said about men shutting the fuck up and here we are rattling on for like a who too long yeah, we're, not taking, we're not taking that that, that advice um i i got the memo but i just i disregarded <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm gonna read this uh poem it's in this uh this collection called the imitation blues uh which is you know i mean that the the idea for for that is that i mean we we just do nothing but steal from each other constantly and that's all we can do and, and I think anybody that that says that they're they don't is 
they're just lying to themselves, you know, because I mean, this is what we do. I mean, we, I, I read one of your poems and I think, oh, and that reminds me and I, and I start to write something and this is the way it works. And, and thank God it does. And we yeah. keep passing the ball on, you know, once the game stops, uh, it's becomes no, not of any interest. So anyway, this poem, uh, uh, I, it's called, uh, I should have played the piccolo and, uh, it's kind of came off of a joke that when I was a kid growing up, you know, I was a big kid, uh, a pretty good sized, you know, I grew early. And, uh, and, and so if I would be with my dad or whatever, and, you know, like around some of the guys he was working with up by the depot or in front of the bar or whatever, and, and some guy would walk up and say, boy, that young fella's getting big. And the old man would be standing there because, you know, my old man was Irish and and, we, and this whole self-deprecation thing is like, this is all, this is, this is about life. Right. So right. He, he looks down and he looks at the guy and he goes, well, we think when he grows up, he's going to play the piccolo <laughs> as opposed to being a football star, you know, right. And, right. Uh, because I mean, uh, uh, that's partially, I mean, uh, I, I've called him a muse for me because I have him to blame for, for uh, this view of life as being uh, America has always been a bullshit story. I was yeah. that by him as a kid that don't shit yourself. This country has been lying to itself since it wrote its fancy fucking goddamn words, uh, right. spread them around. Who was free when they wrote that shit? Every man is free. Well, obviously women weren't. And uh, obviously they had fucking slaves and all, all of this, you know, stuff. And, and then not to mention his biggest bitch were all the indigenous people who had been fucking murdered and put yeah. out, you know, in, in the name of white supremacy or in the name of privilege, whatever you want to call it. So I, I, I got that dose early on and steady growing up, you know, and so I just, I couldn't ever escape that. And I believe him for that. And I thank him for that because, you know, in, in this world, when you are a white male, you better have that perspective. You should have, if, uh, if you have any goddamn sense at all. Yeah. I should have played the piccolo. That was a long winded introduction, wasn't it? <laughs> Go for it. Four, <laughs> four score and seven years ago. No, I should have played the piccolo. For years, I never thought myself a poet. I didn't understand most of the poetry I'd read or care to decode it. That convoluted, cryptic, high-dollar lingo, I needed Webster to help me plow through and still never knew what the fuck was going on. I couldn't unwind the syntactical mysteries I'd find at every turn of phrase another puzzle and intriguing when I was a kid, when everything was a mystery to me, like the sound of my tongue, liquidy and clippity in my mouth, articulating whispered gibberish and words against my teeth and lips, the roof of my mouth, a foreign music to echo in the ear of the soul, that queer landscape inside my head, an edgy fear of the unknown, the universe of the mind, like prayer, our search for a reason to go on, playing along in this game we've evolved into buying, the belief in the significance of our particular existence, having meaning, 
believing those stories of myth or religion or science, the chatter to support a collective mission, a unified awareness that we must sacrifice the glories of individual ego and work like ants for a better tomorrow, for a true day of reckoning, a day of understanding. When the answer will arrive on a gold, like a golden key gleaming on a purple pillow, along with the secret knowledge of which door we need to open to find universal peace and love, the big why. And if I buy into that notion of our ability to know, we give ourselves way more power than we know we can have. And I want you to know that I know I don't know shit and don't care to pretend I do. I know today is upon me and Coyote will be back. Where is the trickster in the Christian corporate model? There is no silliness in the boardroom, no laughter at the gates of hell. I'll take old, I'll take wily old Coyote losing his ass again and again. That roadrunner oblivion is too quick for me. Give me beauty or give me head and fuck the rest of it. Men have been the managers, the progressive masters of fear. So let's give women a chance to screw it up some more. See what they might do with this cursed boys camp of indentured servitude. Maybe trade a little tenderness for drudgery or despair. Give me free love and saddle shoes. I bet the Buddha was a gay blade who played the piccolo, a poet and a mama's boy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> do people still do it. Here. Do we still do the snapping? Can we still do the snapping? <laughs> Excellent. Man, I, so many images, but, but it has the narrative. I mean, I can follow I don't lose myself in just the images and the language. There's still a story there, you know, and, and man, it comes the way you wrap it up at the end. Um, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Well, you know, I mean, I, I we, we uh, I, and everybody is different. And I, and I try, I really do. I mean, in the whole, this imitation sort of idea of things, I do try on other people's clothes at times and write these things that aren't necessarily sort of a narrative driven sort of a thing. But that's the preference I think I have. I always want to, it's like I'm, it, it's like Eileen says, I can't shut the fuck up. I'm always <laughs> trying to tell people something or I yeah. want to in a way, or there's a voice that wants to move through from one, yeah. from, from beginning to end. And that's uh, for, for better or worse, that's what I do most of the time, probably. And, and I entertain myself. <laughs> right, absolutely. Well, you know, what do you think of, of censorship and, and cancel culture and, and how it's sort of manifesting? You know, I mean, is that something you see as uh, threats to artistic integrity or um, the ability to, to express yourself in a wide ranging way or even to, to look back at historical diction and language and, and use that because... You know, we're at this point where it seems like even things that are happening in the past, whether it's movies or, or certain things, there's a sense of going back and, and, and sanitizing the past and sanitizing history. I and mean, what do you what do you think about that, that trend in, in mass popular culture that seems to be 
shutting things up and canceling things in ways that's not just, you know, nicely asking, but, but aggressively shutting things down. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, uh, uh, if it's a wholesale sort of, uh, shutdown thing or, you know, canceling out like, like the old people that wanted to, uh, you know, censor a Huckleberry fan or, or, yeah. or things like that. Uh, I know, I, I, I don't agree with that at all. And it's like the people that tell me I can't watch, I can't watch a Woody Allen movie, or I can't, you know, because they have these, uh, they, they, the, the attachment of, of, of the artist, uh, and then the production of what they've done, the art. No, I, I don't buy, I can't buy that at all. I don't think we can let ourselves go down that rabbit hole. That's just a, that, that, that's not America. And, and I think the biggest problem with America, uh, and, and it may be its destruction. Uh, I mean, that is, this is a great experiment. And, and, uh, and, and that's one of the things, right, the founding fathers said, I mean, you know, if, if you can, if you can manage this, you know, good on you, but uh, you, you're going to have to, it's going to have to evolve. But it's always that, that whole sense of freedom, I think, is absolutely necessary. And, and I, I just absolutely detest censorship in fucking every form. I, I just don't think it's, it's right. But, but there are, uh, it, it, well, if, I, if you're calling me, if, if you're, you're asking me if, if, uh, if censoring uh, fascism or, uh, or that kind of shit, if that's censorship, I don't see that as censorship at all. You know, and and so I mean, I think part of the problem is is just in education. Is in uh, uh, I think people become lazy and and they don't. You know, it's like you just do some fact checking on your own. You know, look into shit, read for Christ's sake, use your goddamn head. Don't along those lines. Along those lines um, you know, it's it's been very interesting to to see, especially with with the loaded language that's been used in the past, just in the past month with sedition and insurrection and coup d'etat, all, all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, the, the language has gotten <clears throat> so hyperbolic in certain ways. Um, I go back to what Mussolini, what Muss Mussolini basically defined fascism as, as essentially corporatism, you know, the marriage of um, the, the state and, and, the, and the corporate interests, right? And so along those lines, the public-private partnership, I, you know, the, the people that I'm following that aren't sucked into the, I think, the false dynamic of Democrat versus Republican. I mean, at the top, they're, they're both very corrupt. And, and the public-private partnership is a form of fascism. Um, and we have the University of Montana, you know, in our own backyard that used to be uh, a university that respected the humanities um, that's now using Montech um, to create, you know, public-private partnerships. And the way I see that is, you know, public gets to put in money and private sector gets to get the profits and, and shit goes wrong. You know, the public is kind of on the, on the dole. And, and so, you know, in this sort of liberal Missoula that we live in, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a poem and I submitted it to the Missoulian. Did I, did I tell you about this? I, I think so. Uh, when you, when, when you gave me your book, the last time I saw you, I think you talked about that with the poems in that book, right? Yeah, I think so. I have it up cause I'm going to read it. Um, that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to poet on, you know, because I have an ego and I want to read my own poem too, because poets are just insufferable. Jesus, man. Um, this? <laughs> well, yeah, well, you heard my stuff now, but, but um, the, the experience really was eye-opening for me because as a private citizen, I wrote a poem and I submitted it to a newspaper and I experienced, you know, retaliation at my workplace from a, a female elected public official who used her position as a board member um, to take me away from my paid work duties and yell at me, intimidate me, um, cuss at me. 
And, you know, the poem was not written to her or about her, right? It was written about a homeless man named Tim Lloyd who died from exposure. And he had a voucher. He actually finally got a voucher to get into housing, but no one would rent to him. And so he died. And around the same time, the sidewalk conversation was happening. I used to live in the Slant Street neighborhoods and someone that lived pretty close to me was going to be on the hook for $30,000, right? For, for sidewalk improvements. Right. And they would have to sell their home in order to, to, de- to deal with that bill. And the, the letters actually went out around Thanksgiving. These, these, these shocking letters that people received that they were going to have to spend thousands of dollars on sidewalks. And so I wrote a poem about it and I'm going to read it. So, okay. And it's a short, it's a short one, Mark. So it's called Sidewalk Poem. You can die on the sidewalk with no place to sleep because here in Missoula, even sidewalks aren't cheap. Our dear city leaders want more sidewalks to die on, giving churches opportunities to provide blankets and soup. Sidewalks aren't cheap, some residents now know, after Thanksgiving week letters arrived with the snow. And speaking of snow, stiffer fines are coming for failing to shovel. Grandma, work off that stuffing. You may think Missoula is a wonderful place with rivers and mountains and great food to taste, but if you're poor and disabled, or elderly and infirm, or not working in tech, this poet can confirm your worries aren't shared by the luminous ones who know better than you and control all the funds. So are you, are you telling me that they refused to publish that poem? No, 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 no. They published the poem. Oh, but then city council member by the name of Glenn Jones. Oh, uh, yes, 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 yes make a big incident yeah and and i had to go through a conflict resolution process which was a very positive experience because they respected ultimately my right to to write poetry and submit it as a private citizen to the newspaper um and everything ended up working out just fine and gwen jones wrote a letter to me um and signed it and she apologized to me because that's what needed to happen um because because this this individual uh, an elected official was um thin-skinned enough to basically allow a poem uh, to, to, to cause her to react in a way that certainly um, didn't make me feel that uh, she was a poetry fan. <laughs> well, but, anyway, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it sounds like uh, uh, she, uh, she learned from this. It was a learning experience. <laughs> it was, it was. And um, later, later when um, I think she took over the finance committee on a vote, uh, she took over the finance committee from Heather Harp because gentrification is still something that's happening in our, in our Zoom town. Um, it's happening even, even crazier now. And, and one of the things I wanted to, to mention really quick, before we probably start looking to wrap things up in a, in a bit, but um, one of the fascinating things about gentrification as I was researching this, because really I want to do a documentary at some point, but um, one of the components of gentrification seems to be artists making places cool, and then the money comes in. So like the artists are there and they're making a, uh, like a part of like a downtown area that's maybe run down. It's a cheap rent. They can find the lofts. You know, they're there making art. And then it's like, oh, this place is cool. And then the capital comes in and, and wants to make everything look nice and, you know, jack up the rents and people buy up the buildings. And, and, and then the artists can't afford to live there. And so, you know, one of the things that seems to be happening more and more and more in Missoula as, you know, people can work remotely and come live in a beautiful place with rivers running through it and fly fishing and, you know, open space bonds so you can walk your dog. And, um, you know, it just, it, it seems like this is a place that once upon a time was pretty cool. P- people like Richard Hugo established the, the writing program, 
you know, this is a nitty gritty town with, with, you know, much more of that, that sort of working class spirit. And, and I just wonder what this place is going to look like in five, 10, 15 years. Um, are artists going to be able to, to live here without subsidies or patrons, um, you know, taking care of them? Uh, it's just, where do, where do things go for, for the artists in the town like, like Zoomtown? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good question, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not, and, uh, uh, you know, artists are, are, are one, uh, one aspect of that, that, that question. Uh, but then just, just regular people too, because I mean, I, I, I like you, you mentioned that I'm called sometimes a working class poet. I mean, right. I, because I've been a working class person all yeah. my life. And so uh, that's, that's the real problem is that I have never made any fucking money. And, and, and my wife and I have been, you know, in jobs that I don't know how those people into the future are going to be able to afford yeah. to, to live in this town. And, and uh, that's, that's really uh, sad in a lot of ways. But then, you know, the other thing I realized too, is that is that so much of that is going away. Uh, you know, like when I was uh, younger, what, I mean, the lively, the livelihood of my growing up experience was mm -hmm. a railroad called the Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul and Pacific. Yeah. worked on that railroad it was out there uh running from 1908 to 1980 and wow. uh, and uh it went down in 1980 and all that disappeared and all of a sudden you could see i mean not only was it happening there but if the same thing was happening over in butte and those whole extractive industry jobs the same thing was happening in the woods because people realized that shit i guess we just can't cut trees forever they don't grow very well in montana you know and, uh, so all of this shit started coming to a head and uh, and the handwriting was on the wall that wow what i call working class it's rapidly disappearing and yeah. just keep shrinking and keep shrinking. So, uh, I mean, now it's, what is it? It's a bunch of service jobs. That's what working class is. The service industry. How can you, uh, you can get all the rich people in the world or not rich necessarily, but way richer than I am here, but who's going to be able to afford to serve them their goddamn plates of food down at the restaurant overlooking the river if those people can't afford to live here? Uh, that's the big problem. And uh, I don't know how that's easily solved. I know that they're, they talk about it. They, I see, I read, still read the newspaper. So uh, <laughs> the Missoulian. Yeah. They're, they're, they're still trying to, you know, uh, uh, do things, uh, you know, little tiny bits and pieces, but for the most part, you see, they're selling the building. They're selling um, the, they, they're going to probably be closing on the uh, sale of their building um, right downtown. Um, who knows? They have a very serious buyer. I read that article and, and it was just, I mean, the, it, it's so fucking sad that yeah. in my mind, it's, uh, they're, they're going to still be here supposedly in another location, I guess. That's not the, that's not the issue exactly. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the whole fact that, 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 that basically the, the whole paper was not even put together here anymore. It, it was still printed here, but I mean, for 150 years, this town had a newspaper and now Helen is going to truck the fucking newspaper over here to throw it on my front porch in the morning. I keep scratching my head and look at it. I'm an old creature of habit. I like yeah. the newspaper. 
but uh, but anyway, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know the answers to those kinds of questions. You and the younger people than you are going to have to figure all that shit out, man. Uh, yeah, and one, of the, one of the things I've done so much research in the last, you know, 10, 15 years on topics that I'm going to hopefully slowly touch on with this podcast. But one of the one of the interviews I had was with Allison McDowell, and she's a, a mom in Philadelphia that, you know, seven years ago started going to school board meetings and started seeing some of these pilot programs that were being introduced and in failing schools and and got to the point of understanding that the solutions are, are, are rapidly being unrolled before us. And, and the solutions by the Davos crowd, by these sort of globalist, elitist people with the World Economic Forum is basically technology slavery. I mean, it's a technocratic you know, enslavement grid that they're hoping to, to wrap around everyone so that they can mine all of our data. They can put us on um, pathways to improvement. And I mean, we're, we're talking through technology now. And so there's still positive things, I think, in terms of connecting people. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the younger generation, my, my kids, my 12-year-old, 10-year-old, um, almost five-year-old, um, they're already becoming dopamine addicts because of their screens. You know, and I'm, I'm fighting a constant battle every day with screen time and making sure they're getting out in the woods and we're taking our dog on a walk. And I'm like, look at this is nature, kids. You know, this, this is actually what sustains us. Um, it's not Elon Musk, okay, and Peter Thiel and their fucking data mining, you know, shit. That the stuff that they're coming up with is, is science fiction dystopian madness. Yeah. And, and, and I really think we need to bring back the idea of the mad scientist. I don't, I don't know why we lost this idea of Dr. Strangelove jacking off on the missile, you know, or the, the, you know, making Frankenstein. You know, I, I don't need a Neuralink implant in my brain. I'm concerned that they're doing that to pigs. Um, I don't care about fucking rockets and, and someone like Bezos leaving Amazon to go, you know, I don't know what the hell these people are thinking they're doing, but, um, but they have their plans and they have their resources. And as people are squeezed in communities like this, um, you know, Hey, if we don't have baristas anymore. Uh, maybe we'll have the robots can just take over all those jobs and automation will, will replace things and, and we'll all have to learn to code. Are you, are you ready to learn to code Mark? Well, I mean, I mean that you know, who knows that uh, it, it, we used to call it science fiction, uh, and yeah. uh, but but we may all be uh, marching towards a sort of artificial intelligence, and human beings may be a thing of the past uh, simply because we're fucking dangerous to begin with, and we know that you know one of the downsides to conservatism is in the end it's always going to lose because shit's going to keep evolving right i mean it just is and uh i i, I wish that uh, it i mean i really would like to you know you know go back to the garden and uh, and pull back to you know maybe uh, not not tribalism in a bad way but in a more living in smaller communities and close to the land and living off the land and still living like decent human beings but God knows we can see right now in this country, uh, there's a lot of people that have a hard time just having a fucking conversation, let alone living together. Uh, yeah. but, I, but I do think, you know, along that same line, one of the things I think fondly of, and I have these conversations with kids or guys, women, uh, that I grew up with, uh, yeah. small town of, uh, of Alberton, which was 300 people, you know, and 60 kids in high school or whatever. I mean, we, we didn't have a lot of people and yeah. but everybody, the whole spectrum was probably there in one way, shape or form. Uh, you guys yeah. bullies 
and you, and you had to learn to live with people. You had to, you, you couldn't run away. You couldn't hide from shit. And so people had to work their problems out yeah. over time yeah. because they were stuck together. You know? mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, I don't know that that's necessarily, uh, not, it's not a, it's not a great solution uh, to the situation, but it is romantic to, for me to look back on and think, you know, we were, we were more tolerant and we weren't, it wasn't like we weren't above getting in a fight or telling somebody to go fuck themselves, but you, you, you had to learn to kind of forgive or to let go or to let somebody else be themselves. Uh, and I don't know, uh, you know, we get more, more and more alienated in this, this uh, mediaized yeah, for sure. Scientific or science fiction movie that you say we're, we're pushing towards. And, and it is, it's probably where we're headed. I hope, I don't know. I don't know. I got no answers, man. <laughs> and, and, and nor do I, nor do I, I have, I have more opportunities to learn more. Um, and I think, you know, one of the great things about um, just how much information really is at our fingertips these days is that, you know, maybe there's too much information and people go down different rabbit holes, but you know, in the last couple months, I, I think I have been able to find clarity in what should be the most important things um, to anyone if they have if they have kids, if they have family, you know, trying to do the work to improve yourself um, and, and make better decisions yourself, because that really is what you can control is, you know, yeah. your, your own actions. We have we have, you know, willpower. <laughs> We've been given will to make our, our decisions. And and so. You know, I, I am encouraged. I'm cautiously optimistic by some of the things that I'm seeing. Um, I don't want to get into the, the woo -woo hippie sounding stuff too much, but I, I really think there is some energy coming and that some of the moves by, um, I don't think dangerous humans, I, I think what makes, makes the, the danger in the power structure is that they are not in touch with what makes people human. They're not in touch with their, their heart, with their, you know. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of research on sociopath, you know, psychopath, type stuff in my work at the shelter i ran across you know folks that had personality disorders and that you know the the danger i saw within sort of the human condition was was more um the folks that didn't have empathy and, and the conscience about what they were doing and the ability to rise in the power structure because that gives you an advantage you know my dad my dad was a kind of a corporate guy worked at ernst and young and then um you know moved the family to, to kansas city when he took a job for sprint and it's funny because, you know, he wasn't, he was too honest to be a corporate guy. You know, uh, he was just, he was too honest. And, and there were some things with PCS that ended up in lawsuits with a lot of the, the th sort of third parties. This is, you know, from my memory as a kid, but, um, you know, I, I know that, that he had a lot of faith in, in the sort of American idea of, you know, an honest businessman and people talking to you straight and, you know, meaning what they said and, and so when socks blow up and you realize people are deceitful and manipulative and, you know, the higher you get, it seems to be that that, that behavior just, you know, people fail upwards, you know, in the power structure when they can demonstrate they're, they're willing to do anything. Um, and so it puts us at a bit of a disadvantage as humans. But at the same time, if you can see what, what is of value as a human on this earth, having limited experience, um, then, then maybe you can, can actually prioritize in a good way, you know, what's important instead of getting sucked into all these endless distractions that, that social media provide us, that, you know, everywhere we turn, we can, we can get lost in stuff if we're not careful. And all of that, all of that, I think, comes from, you know, it comes from uh, a good family. I mean, it comes yeah. from parents 
who spend time with their kids, talking to their kids. It, it comes from that kind of a communication, I think. And that's the only way that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll sort of survive whatever the evolution of <laughs> the, the culture will be, will be through communication and, and, and teaching your kids to, uh, you know, love themselves and to love other people and to listen. I mean, that's all that, that that's our job, uh, yeah. our big job. And we should never forget that one, I don't think. Yeah, along the lines of conservatives and uh, stories you were telling, you were talking about your dad. And I was thinking about my, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. Uh, uh, he was, the, he was the, uh, the, on my family tree, the outcast in a way, but he was the German. <laughs> yeah, and he was born in Germany. And, uh, and he, but he was, he, he had so many different jobs. He was a self-starter, you know, I mean, he, he was a, uh, he had a pig farm. He was, a he worked in a, he sold cars. He, he, he worked as a cop at one time. He, he, uh, he, he did all these different things. Right. But, uh, totally independent. He had a dairy and, uh, all through the depression, he provided milk. This was down in Beaverhead County. He provided yeah. milk for the people. And, uh, and of course, a lot of people couldn't pay. And, yeah. but he continued to deliver milk. And, uh, and I remember the story that at the end of the depression, mm -hmm. he still had like around $6,000 in unpaid milk bills over a decade. Yeah, a lot of money in 1940, right? $6,000 of unpaid milk bills. And he just, you know, threw the damn bills away. Uh, that, that's the kind of, of uh, 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 social liberalism, I guess you'd say, that, that a lot of old-fashioned conservatives had. They were, they were good people, good at heart. They took care of other people. But he was also the same guy that he... To, he, uh, he sorted through the garbage, mm -hmm. take the garbage out of the kitchen. He'd take it down. They had a big apartment house with a big old furnace down there and a, a coal stoker or whatever on it. But yeah. he would take the garbage down there and he'd peel the paint off. I mean, the paint, the paper off the tin cans and, and throw that in the goddamn furnace. And he'd yeah. hammer the tin cans flat and throw them in a, in a bucket. And everything else the, 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 that you couldn't compost that was burnable went into the furnace. That's how he continued to heat the goddamn place. And then he yep. had this one bucket of uh, cans he took out to a 55-gallon drum and, and kept dumping them in. And eventually, he would take that drum in his truck out to the city dump. And that's what he hauled to the dump was flattened tin cans because no one was recycling back then that was that was the kind of conservative he was and i remember it, he would always vote a republican all yeah. his life and i remember uh he was like in his uh 90s uh and this was in the 70s and it was you know like right at watergate and i was over there to visit and and uh, he's just sitting at the kitchen table there, you know, and I, I just couldn't help that, you know, you're 18, 19 years old, you're going to be a smart ass, you know, because you're, and you're a Democrat, you, your old man's a union man, you've been raised this way. And so I'm sitting there at the dining room table with my egg or whatever, my little cup of coffee. And I said, uh, over to my grandfather, he's got the paper and sitting there reading the damn paper, you know, and, and I said, uh, so how's your boy doing today? Meaning, Mr. Nixon, our president, right. our, our soon to be ex president at that moment. And, and, and he stood there, just held that paper for a second, and he dropped that paper down, 
And he looked at me and he said, I'll tell you what I think. I said, what do you think about all that? And he said, I'll tell you what I think. He said, I think they ought to line every one of those sons of bitches up on the White House lawn and machine gun the bastards. <laughs> Mitchell, Laird, Ehrlichman, Halderman, Nixon, Agnew, every one of those sons of bitches. <laughs> he probably knew what, 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 what the shame brought on the party, right? He, he, saw, he saw what was happening. He, he, just, he wouldn't abide that shit, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he wouldn't abide that shit. The shit that's gone on right now, I was happy to see some guy on the news the other night, uh, former uh, Missouri senator, you know, uh, come out and, and, and really articulate well uh, what a lot of Republicans, real Republicans probably feel is that Jesus fucking Christ, are we going to get over this shit? I mean, wait, what, what's going to happen? You can't, you can't allow this kind of, it's unreality. You can't, I mean, obviously there's a problem with, with everything. We understand the way things are, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I mean, through Obama, through Bush, through Obama, and then this fucking clown out of the Trump tower is descended upon us from nowhere. We have to deal with his ass for four years. But the, but the real thing that scares me are, are the people, the, the, the people, and not only just, uh, the clowns that have been elected and are in the goddamn Congress, but the people who elected them and, and are still standing behind that shit. I mean, I do not quite figure out how you stand behind absolute fucking idiocy. You know, I mean, I, 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 no, I at some point, Mark, I'm going to offer classes on my own because um, I can actually, I can explain and put things in context in ways that, that a lot of people really don't understand if you haven't been studying the occult and you haven't been studying like chaos magic and meme magic and QAnon and psyops. If, if you don't understand, are you are you are you going to tell me that that this has some kind of there's a hex on these people? Is that what's going on? <laughs> no, no, chaos magic is chaos magic is real, and this this actually relates to to us as artists, right? So um, postmodernism, we are at this point, right, with postmodernism. And, you know, Trump tweeting can be a good example of this. Everything is sort of this, this flat line in terms of high culture, low culture, right? And, you know, magicians back in the day would do rituals in order to, to, to influence reality. Um, the chaos magicians, what they do is they use elements of popular culture um, to push things in, in ways that they want to see. And so um, Pepe the Frog, right? And, and Pepe the Frog and Keck, this idea of, of Keck being, um, it's, a, it's kind of a long story, but Gary Lackman wrote a book called Dark Star Rising, and he really looks into um, the idea of new thought, like positive thinking, and Donald Trump's dad being really into new thought, so that Vincent Peale guy, I think was one of the practitioners back in the day, um, but, but uh, what Gary Lackman does is he takes new thought and chaos magic and says there's something more going on here, and for people that, that think QAnon is just this weird thing that made everyone believe in satanic pedophile Democrats, right? Um, you know, it sounds ridiculous when you say it like that. And that's how corporate media has been reporting this QAnon phenomenon. But um, the QAnon phenomenon is much more um, widespread and sophisticated in, in terms of the unreality that you say people are experiencing. Um, there are still people that think come March, 
that that something is going to happen. Um, they think that Trump is actually the real president and they're just letting Biden sort of be pretend president. Um, the inauguration was fake. It happened the day before. Um, all the lights went out. And I mean, I, I understand. I understand all of that. And I understand what they're up to. But I, I just I still don't understand how fucking anyone can actually swallow it. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you why, because there's aspects of this that I believe. OK, because I um, understand that intelligence um, operatives um, can use compromise networks like the Epstein network. And when you actually start looking at Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell um, and her dad, Robert Maxwell, and, you know, what, what was going on um, with the compromise efforts, when you look at um, Epstein and all the money that was being invested in like MIT and technology and AI, um, when you start understanding that they have islands, these billionaires like Richard Branson has an island, they were working on this Terra Mar project. Um, I mean, when you, when you look into things like um, even, I mean, this goes into like, I could go on and on, Mark. Oh, and, and- I, I understand. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't completely understand all the details that you're speaking about right now, but I do understand this conversation, I think, has been going on for a long time. It, it was going on, you know, back uh, 100 years ago in this right. country. And, and I'm sure that your uh, historical uh, loops and, and convolutions do take you back to that particular time and connect all these dots as we hook up and, and tie the strings and show the connections and whatnot. I, I understand that, but it's like, uh, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't really believe, I mean, I know that I know that you are a very intelligent human being and you follow every single one of these threads that you can find and you see that there is relevance within a whole lot of it. I mean, all these, there are lots of connections that are there and there is all, there's a real story involved in a whole lot of this, but to connect all these dots and to put all this stuff in one, this one nice package of shit that then the people that I'm seeing that yeah. are following this shit, you think you're trying, don't, you can't tell me that they have even a fucking, well, I, I, maybe this is an elitist asshole position, but they haven't got three quarters of the fucking intelligence probably that you do. I'm sorry. I, I just believe that. There's a lot of interesting podcasts out there that I've been following. And there's, there's, there's some interesting left, right um, collaboration that's, that's, that's actually going on. I mean, I, I see opportunities especially with some of the younger people I'm talking to that don't want to fight the same culture wars. Um, you know, that, I, I mean, I think there are going to be strange bedfellow opportunities down, down the road, but um, I also have, have completely lost um, faith in anything democratic in terms of the Democrats. Um, you know, I think the Clintons were one of the most destructive um, damaging entities to ever, ever taint this country because of what they did. Um, when you look at the 90s and the, what the Clintons were able to accomplish when it comes to, you know, mass incarceration and repealing Glass-Steagall to allow the, the banking, you know, gambler addicts to, to go at it. Uh, when you look at um, the Telecommunications Act that, you know, makes people stupider because um, you allow more corporations to consolidate their holdings. I mean, the Clintons pulled some nasty, nasty shit. And then when you look at the, the 2008 Obama getting elected, you know, when the economy was blowing up, the Democrats had Congress. They had both houses of Congress and the executive office. And what do they do? They bailed out the banks, you know? And so the Democrats at this point have become the elitist party and they have abandoned the working class. 
Um, and a lot of people that voted for Trump voted for Obama in 2012. And I just think that the, the de Democrats have not been able to, to handle um, the fact that, that Trump won in 2016. You can maybe debate whether or not that was legitimate. But um, when you talk about the, the QAnon people, um, you know, what about the Russia gay people for four years? For four years, there was a sense that Russia and Putin hid behind every fucking shadow and we had these strings and it was like, you know, fingering Trump's asshole to make a move. And, you know, it's just like, what the fuck was that? Four years of Russiagate, you know, blaming um, the fact that the Democrats turned their, turned their backs on large segments of their base. Um, you know, it, it, and what they did to Bernie in 2016 to rig the election against him in the primaries. Um, and then they in court, they actually said, well, no, we don't have to like follow like any rules we can just like in dark rooms, you know, pick whoever we want. You know, and, and so, I, I mean, I don't think we're going to ever get back to a place where Democrats and Republicans, you know, are going to have civil conversations with each other. I think we have to get to a place where um, substrata of those parties start forming other parties and you scare the corporate people backing the Republicans and the corporate people backing the Democrats and playing this little fucking game, you know, as we hope that we get a $1,400 check. Or is it going to be maybe $1,200? Or is it going to be, I thought it was 2000 What? Where's my stimmy check, Mark? Why can't I get a stimmy check? I mean, that, that, part of the uh, uh, big problem here, I guess, is, is that, uh, you know, it is, uh, it, it's just, we are all just so self-involved. I mean, it's a, we're, we're all spoiled rotten. I've been spoiled rotten uh, oh, yeah. since the day I was born. And, uh, and, uh, but I don't, uh, I mean, I, I, while I agree with, uh, with, with a, a lot of the points that, that, that you made, uh, I mean, it's, to me, it's just, a, it's been a, it's been a continuation of, yeah. it hasn't, you know, I mean, it, the focus on the Clintons and Obama is not, uh, to say that oh, neither one of them were fucking saviors. They were, they were extensions of a program that had been put in place. I mean, basically, the the, the best situation that that I can think of or see and sort of historically in my lifetime or what I know in this American dream of my lifetime and just prior was had to do with what happened after the last collapse and what what happened in uh, in those years that Rosie was in office and created this sort of social structure that yeah. sort of helped help the people. It helped the country. And of course, World War II uh, was involved in that too. But but still, the, the, the programs that were set forth, the tax structure that was in place, those kinds of things were, is really what built a, a middle class. It's really what gave my family the ability to spoil me. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and, and then it, there, nothing has been done but chip away at that motherfucker. And of course, the, the biggest axe to fucking start, you know, mowing that baby down and put us on the road was Mr. Reagan. I mean, that's where it really fucking all started. And all of those people that you have mentioned have just extended that and moved in a direction which does almost, you know, seem... Uh, of course, it always has seemed. It did back with the fucking Rockefellers and at the turn of the century before the goddamn first collapse. It's always been that way. And Black Lives Matter, for Christ's sake, those people know that this motherfucker has been bullshit forever in terms of the power structure in this country. The power is always going to be in charge. 
but yeah. uh, I don't. I, there, there's so much of of the shit and the and the the, the 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 media strain and the and the stitching together of story and conspiracy at this point that just fucking drives me goddamn crazy. I mean, I would yeah. just like to see people get back to some form of 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 reality, and and of course that's the belief that you could actually elect people who really were people like Bernie or people that really did the, the were there to serve the people, you know, yeah. instead of the fucking ass clowns that we see there right now, particularly from the state of Montana, you know, yeah. uh, uh, with the exception of Tester, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I don't know what the fuck it's going to be. And I got no fucking answers, but, uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's too bad. It's a, it, it's sad. And, and, and the only hope that I really have uh, is, uh, is for people and, yeah. and for my kids and for individuals that I know. And, yeah. and that's, that's all that I mean, I'm going to die not too long anyway. So it doesn't really fucking matter for me. I got maybe, you know, 30 years at the outside. That's a real yeah. fucking pushing it. 20 yeah. is probably more like it on the long term, unless I yeah. get hit by cancer or a truck before then, you know, I'm right. on the end of time. So I, I have nothing to put in. I should do, I should like Eileen suggests, shut the fuck up. I'm so glad before you shut up, Mark, that you were able to share that story of, of tossing away the, the, the milk debt. All right. Because I mean, imagine there's a beautiful word. All right. We can end it on this. There's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful word that I wish could become, you know, a mantra of sorts. Uh, it's called Jubilee, right? Jubilee. That's such a beautiful word because the idea of a Jubilee is a periodic cancellation of all debts. Yeah. I mean, it is. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful thing? And if there was a jubilee, right, the, the student loan debts and the other stupid debts and the credit card debts, the credit cards you were pushed when you were 18, I mean, let's have a jubilee and, and, and then start over. And it's pretty fucking easy to do for the federal government, you know. Right. Why the fuck not? <laughs> Why the fuck not? Why the fuck not? You know, I mean, Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll tell you why the fuck not. It's another biblical word, right? Usury. That's all uh, we are uh, in this fucking country. That's yeah. what it's become. Consumerism and fucking usury. And, right. and, and, and you know, that shit should, both of those things should be crimes in my book. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, 70% of the economy, it's like George Bush said, you really want to do something, you know, to help the war effort? Go out and spend some money. Here, let me give you some money. Go out and spend that money. Now, that's the same thing they're, they're saying now. So you're going to spend your way out of this. Buy a bunch of fucking more plastic junk we're going to throw in landfills or, or fill the ocean up. Yeah. yeah. Good luck with that fucking plan. That's all I can say. I won't that's be here to see it. But believe you me, Mother Nature is going to, as George Carlin would say, she's going to fucking eat you alive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I do my part in trying to support the local economy. I like buying shit, but um, I think if people want to, to listen to some great poetry, they should search you out online because you have um, audio stuff that, that people can find. Um, you have plenty of books of poetry that people can buy in local bookstores here or buy books online. You're still teaching. Um, I mean, you're still out there in the, in the community bringing poetry to kids and to, and to people and you spent a lot of time today with me, Mark, um, talking about all kinds of stuff. And I'm so glad that we were able to do this and that we're not on the radio so you can use the full color of, of language that, that, that you were blessed with. Um, and we need to really meet in meet space um, also. 
and 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 hang out and talk a bit. So yeah, um, and I'm I'm hoping to get the jab one of these days. Once I get the jab, I think I will be much more feel much more better about like going out and getting a beer or a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, I, I will certainly join you for a cup of coffee. Absolutely, Mark. It was a pleasure, and I am sure I will see you around. Take care, Travis. Thank you. Bye. Okay, if you stuck around to the end, thank you. I'm your host, Travis Matier. This has been episode 15 of Zoom Cron, Chronicles of Zoomtown. I will continue be putting out content at least once a week, um, even if it's just uploading some old interviews like that one I did with poet Mark Gibson, Gibbons. People don't want to say Gibson, but Gibbons, poet Mark Gibbons. Um, and I will include a link to the show notes, I, I believe, when that originally came out. Um, but if you have any questions or you want to get in touch with me, willskink at yahoo.com. That's right. I am Will Skink. That was a conversation with myself. Gig is up, <laughs> but it was fun. Um, it's December 27th. Now, as I'm recording this 10 2 PM downtown Missoula, Montana. Thank you for listening. Thank you for helping make my 2021 interesting. Um, I appreciate all the feedback and support. And I hope good things will be coming 2022. Good night.